and welcome to Silver Age Silver Screen, a podcast where we watch, discuss, and review film adaptations of comics, anime, video games, and other stereotypically geeky works. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. Now, Riley, I want you to imagine that it's 2008. Mm-hmm. The idea of a global pandemic is ridiculous. The MCU doesn't exist. The most popular video game is Mario Kart Wii. I'm pretty sure we would have been in like third grade. Donald Trump is just a reality TV host. I mean, the economy just collapsed in 2008. But I mean, it also did that in 2020 because life is hell. But imagine it's 2008. Right. And then imagine that a movie about a B-list Marvel superhero who is actually, at that point in time, hated by pretty much all comic fans because of Civil War, the shitty comic version. Imagine that Marvel announces that they're going to make a movie about him starring a failed drug addict in a career tailspin to be directed by the guy who made Elf. And then... Jump back to 2020 when there's like 20 plus MCU films. One of them's the most profitable film in history. Robert Downey Jr. has proven time and time again that he's an amazing actor. And Iron Man is maybe even more famous than Batman and Superman. This film impacted superhero cinema so much. We're talking about Iron Man, by the way, as you can see from the episode title. A lot of people have a hard time believing what superhero cinema would be like without Iron Man. Which is funny to think about because when the film came out, no one in mainstream knew who or what Iron Man was. And like you said, everybody in the comics hated him. I think at the time I might have known him from like the 90s cartoon, but that's like it. It's funny. When they were doing some test screenings for this movie, there were people who were giving notes of, I don't understand why you didn't just keep it comic accurate and make it about a robot instead of a man being inside a robot suit. But Iron Man is a man in a robot suit. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how little people knew about Iron Man. And cut to today in, spoiler alert, Endgame, when he snaps and makes the ultimate sacrifice to save the universe, people are crying. And people are crying and it's, like I said, Iron Man is such an influential character in an influential film, but it all came from a film that people were convinced was going to be a flop. Yeah, and we won't be talking about the MCU except for in how stuff set up in this movie continued on with like style this will be a review of this film as it is as a standalone but props to what this film created and that's the biggest thing and uh, Riley before we get into the review I believe you said you had some background information on this film and on Robert Downey Jr. So at the time Robert Downey Jr. was unfortunately a sad joke in Hollywood. He was the son of a famous actor-producer, Robert Downey Sr. The two, unfortunately, don't have a very good relationship anymore. RDJ was a cast member on Saturday Night Live and to this day considered to be the worst cast member on that entire show. Keep in mind, there's been a lot of people on Saturday Night Live And a lot of shitty people, too. (laughs) You know, honestly, I didn't even know until you said that that he was on Saturday Night Live because I don't think of him as a comedy actor. I mean, 
his most famous character, Iron Man, is a snarky asshole, but I did not know Robert Downey Jr. used to be on SNL. Yeah, he was like in one season in the 80s, and his thing was that he's this like coked out teenage angst guy. I don't know. He made a few supporting character roles in some comedy films like Weird Science and Back to School, more comedy films. Then, and I believe it was either 1992 or 1993, he received critical acclaim for his portrayal of Charlie Chaplin in the film Chaplin. And it was up for Oscars, all these awards, people were raving, he gave such a great performance. Unfortunately, the next over a decade after that was followed by years of drug abuse, jail time, stints in rehab, and... He had done movies in between all that, but nothing really reached the height, uh, anything too popular and nothing too successful. So a lot of people were just kind of, unfortunately, waiting to hear the news that he had overdosed or he had passed away. And that's, that's tragic. Very, absolutely. In the mid-2000s, however, he had cleaned up his act due to his wife at the time, and I believe they're still married. I think they're still married, yeah. His wife at the time basically gave him an ultimatum saying it's either me or the drugs and he went for a drive to clear his head and he stopped off at Burger King and according to him, he had the worst cheeseburger he had ever had in his life and it made him rethink, reevaluate himself and rethink his values and he took all the drugs that he had had with him and threw it into the ocean and said, I'm done with that forever. And he had started to have a bit of a career comeback. Films like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is written and directed by Shane Black, which the two later worked together again on Iron Man 3. Yeah, also, I'm pretty sure Shane Black uh, wrote this film. Oh, yeah. He was in 2007's Zodiac, which is a David Fincher film, received critical acclaim and is one of my favorite films of all time, personally. 2008's Tropic Thunder, where he played a very controversial role. Oh, God, he is great in Tropic Thunder, by the way. Absolutely. The the film is offensive, but it's trying to be to expose the absurdity of Hollywood. We're getting off topic, but his character in Tropic Thunder is an actor wearing blackface to make fun of the fact that Hollywood doesn't give black actors roles and saying that they would rather have a popular actor wearing blackface than an actual black person. It's a satire of Hollywood, and it's hilarious, and the movie's great. That same year he did that, 2008, a film was released that soared his career to new heights, heights that he had never seen before. That film was Marvel's Iron Man. The thing about Iron Man is they had been planning this since the 90s. And really it was in the early 2000s that they had officially set out a plan saying, okay, these are the films that we're starting development on. These are the characters that we're going to make films about and we're going to make them all in a shared universe. So essentially they set the foundations for the MCU in the early 2000s. At the time, some of the original films that were announced were a Captain America reboot, a Power Pack movie, which is a team of adolescent, tween, 12-year-old superheroes. They were going to make a Deadpool film directed by Robert Rodriguez, the man who directed Alita Battle Angel, Sin City, and the Spy Kids films, and a bunch of other good films in between all that. Not to say that those movies are bad, just he has a very interesting filmography. They did end up developing 2003's Daredevil, which has Ben Affleck in the starring role and we all know how that ended up. The MCU did not start with that film, but it was originally intended to, 
an Iron Man film was among this list of in-development films, and the original actor they had tied to this role was Tom Cruise. Ugh. Yeah. Oof. That wouldn't have gone as well, I don't think. I mean, he's an okay no. actor. Yeah. But also, he doesn't have Robert Downey Jr.'s charm. And also, he's a lunatic cultist. After years and years of the project getting pushed back, Tom Cruise dropped the role. He said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. It's clearly not going to happen. But something happened in around 2007, 2008. The MCU had acquired a group of talented filmmakers devoted to making this MCU a thing. John Favreau to direct Iron Man, Kenneth Branagh to direct Thor, Joss Whedon to oversee all of it and make the Avengers. So when it came down to casting Tony Stark, John Favreau wanted to cast Robert Downey Jr. However, the studio was completely against that. They had said, and I'm directly quoting them, under no circumstances are we ever to cast him in that role. They were totally against RDJ playing Iron Man because of his past and everything that had gone on with him and he was essentially in a career tailspin at the time. It was John Favreau who fought for this, for the casting of RDJ, and because of that film and because it was so successful, we now have a Marvel Cinematic Universe. Without Iron Man, there was no Avengers, there was no Guardians of the Galaxy, there's no Infinity War, Endgame, none of that. It all began with Iron Man. Well, let's talk about Iron Man. So, starting off the recap, we got Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. Actually, he won't be a philanthropist in this one, or at least no. not to the extent of... Whatever. We have Tony Stark. He's a famous weapons developer. Bit of a dick. Bit of a sleazy guy. Or, sleazy's not the word for it. Like... Chauvinist. Casanova type. He goes around partying, gambling, banging reporters. We have this guy. And while doing a weapons demonstration in Afghanistan, his convoy is attacked. He is kidnapped by a terrorist group called the Ten Rings. He's blown up and gets some shards of metal in his heart and has to build a device to keep them out to stay alive. And then, with the help of his fellow captive Yinsen, he breaks out of the terrorist camp in a suit he builds filled with weapons that allows him to just kick ass. Yinsen, of course, gets shot saving him and that helps inspire him to be a hero. He goes home. He starts trying to rethink what he wants to do with his life. He decides he doesn't want to be a weapons developer anymore and wants to be a superhero. He builds an upgraded suit. He fights some terrorists. He discovers that his kidnapping by terrorists was actually planned out by his friend, Obadiah Stane, played by Jeff Bridges, and they fight. And then at the end of the movie, he shockingly and announces that he's a superhero and doesn't have a secret identity. And that's an overview of the film. May have glossed over some things. I should write these things out in advance. But that is Iron Man. Riley, initial thoughts. Well, right out the gate, one thing that struck me as interesting is at the beginning of this film, the Paramount logo appears on screen. And you got to keep in mind, at the time, Marvel was not owned by Disney yet. They weren't bought out until, I believe, 2008, 2009, somewhere in that area. The original plan was they were going to completely fund and produce their own cinematic universe, essentially saying, we don't need big studio backing, we can do it ourselves. And then Disney said, we'll give you $8 billion. And they said, sold! <laughs> 
Like, again, I already knew that fact, but it was just kind of took me off guard. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Right out the gate, Robert Downey Jr., despite the fact that the studio didn't want him, kills it as Tony Stark. He absolutely brings the charisma, the charm, the sleaziness. The yeah. humor, the yeah, arrogance. The humor. Oh, yeah, The absolutely. intelligence. I really like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man as a character. And you're right. That's one of this film's greatest strengths. Not only does he steal every scene as just this brilliant, charismatic, super genius, but I really do like what this film and later MCU movies do. He is a complex character behind the facade of this playboy. He does have some deep, deep issues. Robert Downey Jr. is incredible at portraying that. Honestly, what can we say about Robert Downey Jr.'s performance that hasn't already been said about him in the entirety of the MCU, you know? It's like, he's fantastic. He's great. We all know this. It's just, initially, he wasn't the desirable casting, and despite that, he does such an incredible job as this character, and he just subverted everyone's expectations. One thing that really struck me this time, the casting is fascinating to me. Just everything around it. Yeah, rounding out the cast, there is Gwyneth Paltrow as Iron Man's love interest secretary, Pepper Potts. There's Terrence Howard as Iron Man's military liaison and close friend. And there's the film's main antagonist, spoilers, it's very obvious that he's the bad guy, Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane. One thing that always shocks me, whenever I think about this, I know Jeff Bridges is in this movie. But every time I think about it, for some reason, I'm like taken aback because I'm like, Jeff Bridges is in the MCU. It's just, I don't know why. It just, maybe it's the fact that I love The Big Lebowski as a film where he plays the dude. I don't know. It's just every time I think about the fact that Jeff Bridges is in the MCU, it's like, damn. Also, <laughs> that creates a weird little actor paradox that Iron Man in the fourth Avengers movie makes a reference to the big Lebowski, even though his father figure was played by Jeff Bridges. That's yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird, but what are you going to do? Gwyneth Paltrow, Terrence Howard as James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. Later, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, later on. Uh, Terrence Howard actually did not reprise his role as James Rhodes in future films. This is the only film where he played Rhodey. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, from what I understand, has to do with the fact that Terrence Howard desired equal pay to Robert Downey Jr. However, at the time, the executive of Marvel, above Kevin Feige, was a man by the name of Ike Perlmutter. Yeah. We've spoken about Ike Perlmutter before on the, uh, the second episode we did about how Marvel should introduce the Fox characters. But Ike Perlmutter is a racist, sexist piece of shit. And he did not want to pay Terrence Howard, an African-American man, equal billing to Robert Downey Jr., a Caucasian man. I mean, I could understand in Iron Man 2 giving Robert Downey Jr. top billing. That's not the problem. The problem is that the actor they hired to replace Terrence Howard looks absolutely nothing like him. No, not even slightly. Not even a little bit. Everything about him is absolutely different. And though Terrence Howard does do a decent job, I do think Don Cheadle does a better job as James Rhodes for the rest yeah, like of the Don MCU. Cheadle. Terrence Howard, I think, comes across as more like abrasive to Iron Man, like a bit more aloof. 
I can understand that because Tony is a bit of a dick to Rhodey throughout the entire film. I don't know. I just I got the feeling I'm like, God damn, dude, you're like you're you're a piece of shit to your friends. But uh, but that just kind of goes to show how far he has fallen morally up to this point. And I do think it is an unfair assessment to say that Don Cheadle does a better job than Terrence Howard. I do think that. But at the same time, Terrence Howard had one film. Don Cheadle had the rest of the MCU to do it, so... You know, the the filming of this film must have been absolutely wild. I mean, I'm pretty sure, from what I've read, halfway through the film, they just threw the script out and improv most of the dialogue. And the cast in this film, that's a fun cast. You have recently out of rehab Robert Downey Jr. You have Jeff Bridges, who's awesome. You have Gwyneth Paltrow, who is insane, like, with her coffee enemas and whatnot. And you have Terrence Howard, who's more insane with him trying to rewrite math because he doesn't think that one times one should equal one. He thinks it should equal two. Exact quote that you need to know because it's hilarious. How can it equal one? If one times one equals one, that means two is of no value because one times itself has no effect. One times one equals two because the square root of four is two. So what's the square root of two? Should be one. But we're told it's two and that cannot be. Yeah, Terrence Howard's a lunatic. Yeah. 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 Also, Paul Bettany as the voice of Jarvis. Yeah, and he sounds weird in this one. Like, he doesn't really have the voice that he would use yeah. in the ones down. I do find it interesting because Paul Bettany was an established actor for years up until this point. Like, he was in Oscar-winning movies. To cast him as, like, the voice of the robot butler in Iron Man film, obviously it ended up working because he would later go on to play the live-action Vision. But I do think it's interesting to think about, I wonder how far ahead... I know the MCU planned out the entire Infinity Saga, but I wonder if even then... They had a plan like, yeah, you're going to play this character Vision in like seven years. Also, from what I understand, Paul Bettany has not seen any of the Iron Man films, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he said like, oh yeah, it was great. I got a bunch of money and I just went in for an hour, recorded some lines for a movie that I have no clue what the plot is. Also, the reporter that Tony Stark sleeps with at the beginning, Christine Eberhardt, she is played by an actor named Leslie Bibb. And in real life, Leslie Bibb is married to actor Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell plays Justin Hammer in Iron Man 2, and he auditioned to play Tony Stark in this film. That's a bit of interesting casting here. One more interesting thing about the casting. There's a very minor character. I think his name is William. He gets shouted at by Jeff Bridges, the famous, in mm -hmm. a cave with a box of scraps. And, of course, he ended up making a reappearance in the second MCU Spider-Man movie ten years later. But anyway, I looked up the guy who plays him. Do you know who that actor is? Yeah, it's uh, the guy who played Ralphie in A Christmas Story, right? Yeah, and I don't really have any thoughts about it besides that's weird that there's a cameo of Ralphie from yeah. A Christmas Story, which means that's three actors from A Christmas Story that we've talked about in this show. The reason why that happened, him and John Favreau are friends, and he just said, hey, you want to be in my movie? Enough about casting. Let's get into the meat. What are some things that you like or dislike? Some thoughts about the film. One thing that really interested me, the first hour or so of this film, it's, I don't want to say rushed, but it's very quick. Like, it, it goes by very quickly. And I don't, I don't consider that necessarily a 
flaw. It's really just to set up a perspective of what this film is really about. Like, you know how um, our last review was the review of Superman the movie, how the first act of that was very long, a little bit drawn out, but it's like the point of that film was to tell a great Superman story, which is what the entire second act does. This film, the first act, shows you a man who is a war profiteer, essentially. That's what he is. He manufactures weapons and sells them to the government and uses them to kill people. And then he goes to the Middle East, to Afghanistan, to demonstrate his latest, new, most destructive weapon. And in doing so, he is attacked with weapons that he himself created and that is yeah. an extremely powerful image yeah like that is that's blown crazy. up by a bomb with his name on it i've yeah. seen people discuss this scene before say oh the irony hashtag irony man <laughs> from then he spends the next three months in a cave where he is forced to manufacture a weapon for the taliban or the ten rings in this film which is a reference to the iron man villain the Mandarin, which later made an appearance in Iron Man 3, but we kind don't know of. how that ended up. Although I will say the Mandarin is set to be the villain of the... Um, uh, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, right? Yes, yes, that's it. He's set to be the villain of the Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings film. So instead of building the weapon, he builds himself a machine to help him escape. And along the way, he sees the destruction that his weapons cause and he realizes firsthand what exactly how much harm he does and being the guy who's been at the barrel of the gun that he produced the entire film from then on is a story of redemption yeah he's been using his talents to kill people but now he decides that he's going to use it to not only free himself but once he gets out of the cave and yinsen sacrifices himself he decides i'm going to use my gifts to help the world and create the iron man or it's not considered iron man at the time but point is the beginning is very rushed up until i would say the mark ii flying scene the the silver suit everything before that was very quick after it it sort of evens out. Before that, you show this is who he is, and then we see what he is experiencing. Like, this is what has been happening to him, and this is what he's now realizing and changing. The rest of the film is him trying to correct himself, to redeem himself in the eyes of the world, of which he's done so much wrong towards. And that's like for the first half of the film. I don't want to say it's bad. No, not at all. It's just, uh, it just felt very fast-paced compared to the rest of the second half of the film. You know, re-watching this film, something that kind of struck me, I do like the arc of Iron Man that he's a war profiteer. He realizes, hey, wait a minute. I'm responsible for innocent people dying. And he decides, just instantly decides, no more making weapons. I'm going to dedicate myself to making the world a better place. This is what I have to do. Yeah. I think this film kind of flubs slightly on how they portray it. The reason he decides to stop making weapons, they frame it as being because his weapons are being sold to the Ten Rings by Obadiah Stane, that his weapons are falling into the wrong hands. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that implies that if his weapons were only being put in the hands of people he wanted them to be in the hands of, he would be fine with making weapons of mass destruction and being a war profiter, history's greatest mass murderer, merchant of death, all that. And I feel like that's a bit of a failed execution. And that was another thing I wanted to bring up today. The MCU notoriously had some issues with its villains in the first two phases. 
A lot of villains were just kind of weak. They put more emphasis on making a good hero as opposed to making a good villain, which I do think that you can either really have a a really in-depth, complex hero or a really interesting villain. And unless it's done really, really well, like, it's hard... I don't know. Never mind. Screw that. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to bring up the idea Obadiah Stane as the villain. I like him as the villain. He's this... Again, another war profiteer. He creates the Iron Monger armor, which that's mentioned at one point in the film. He's essentially the dark counterpart of Tony Stark. I think as a villain, on paper, he works. The problem with him as a villain entirely has to do with motivation. It's the idea that he just out of nowhere is like, oh yeah, I just, I hate Tony Stark. Like, that's fine. That scene where they're at the event, the gala or whatever, and he tells him like, yeah, I'm the one that filed the injunction on you to cut you out of your own company. That is interesting because that was the first time you realize, oh, he's the real villain of this film. Okay, well, let's be honest. Let's be honest. The moment you see him, you know he's the real villain. He's so obviously evil. It's the moment where Iron Man realizes he's the bad guy. It's, I believe, either the next scene or the scene after the next scene where Obadiah Stane meets with the leader of the Ten Rings, and he reveals that not only is he working with them, but he hired the hit on Tony Stark and has been trying to kill him ever since. That is where they messed up. See, I think what what would have worked instead is make him just this corporate greed war profiteer guy who is like, yeah, Tony's trying to take it in a different direction, and Obadiah is like, no, this is what's best for the company, and... His entire motivation is trying to take the Iron Man suit for himself because that's what he sees as right versus Tony thinks that it's not, obviously. So what it should have been, he did not try to kill Tony in the beginning. He wasn't working with the Ten Rings initially. But as the film goes on, the wedge between Obadiah and Tony becomes bigger and bigger, driving them apart. And in that, Obadiah goes to the extreme of making his own armor because that's the best weapon you can have in a war. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to sell that weapon. Him as a villain works on paper. It's just the motivation they gave him is so out of place and so last minute. Like, it happens two-thirds into the movie. It's this twist, and it's so rushed through, and his desire to kill Tony the entire time, that just doesn't work. This idea that he wants to kill Tony because he's in his way, that would have been so much better, but they didn't do so. He had potential, but they messed up on his motivation. I will agree that Obadiah Stane has some dumb motivations. I do think the character does work, though, because Jeff Bridges just gives in a pretty, pretty good performance. Oh, yeah. He's very good at being an evil, corrupt executive who tries to murder the main character. The arc reactor that he has in the beginning of the film, Mm -hmm. like just hooked up to a car battery, all that, that is fucking horrific. (laughs) Like, can you imagine you wake up after a bomb goes off in front of you and there's just a giant hole in your chest and in that hole is a machine hooked up to an old car battery? Yeah, that would be horrifying. And then he, in a cave with a box of scraps, builds a much cleaner version, but still. Another thing, from what I understand about Iron Man's original origin in the comics, this is a fairly good adaptation of that. Literally, everything is the exact same, except instead of the Middle East, instead of Afghanistan, in the original origin, he was in Vietnam. 
because the Vietnam War was happening at the time. And even the guy who was in the cave with him, in this film it's Yinsen, in the original comics, it's Ho Yinsen. They has the same name, essentially. And I will say, talking about how Iron Man's original backstory was Vietnam War tied, and another thing about old Iron Man comics is how very clearly they were made in the 60s and 70s with the yellow peril going on and the Mandarin being, oh boy... I'm going to make a bet. This film, it already hasn't aged super well. This film, in like 20 years, I bet we talk about the same way we talk about early Iron Man comics with their Mandarin, because, man, they really do go into the generic Middle Eastern terrorist thing, which is not great. This entire film, I already knew it was political. Upon rewatching it, I was kind of shocked how much of a commentary on post-9-11 America it was. And it's really, from what I can tell, from what I remember, it's really the most political of any MCU film. They pretty much drop politics as a subject outright after this so probably is gonna it's gonna date the film in a few years it isn't just political it's kind of sloppy political again with generic ooh evil muslim terrorists and again what i said with it failing to portray war profiteering in general as being bad and implying that he would be totally fine with making weapons of mass destruction as long as they ended up just in the hands of the united states military real life is less black and white than that it's very much so a product of its time it was made in 2008 it was five years into the iraq war so i guess also the pentagon and their influence on films with them allowing you to use military equipment which you need to make a film like this but only if you make films that are in support of the u.s military which is honestly a kind of shitty thing but whatever yeah speaking of being made in 2008 For the most part, I would say it's sort of a 50-50 bag for me, honestly. Half of the CGI still works and still holds up to this day. Half of it doesn't really hold up as well, honestly. There's some shots where I'm like, damn, that is really CGI. And that's mid-2000 CGI. And I will give it props, though. It was really around this time, people hadn't seen special effects pictures to this scale and on this level. It was really, from what I understand, 2007's Transformers, the Michael Bay film, people saw like giant CGI beings like actually in a one-on-one action scene interacting with real life people and in a way like that and that was the first time people had ever really seen CGI on that level at that point and this film follows in that the year after. You know what I think? I think that you have been spoiled on good CG films from 2020. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. I agree. It holds up fairly well, I would say. It's just looking back at it. It does. It does. It's just there were times where I'm like, damn, that is CGI. While we're on the topic of special effects, you know what is probably the best thing I can say about these special effects? The Iron Man suit design, not only is it well animated for the time, I really like the Iron Man suit design. It's comic accurate. It looks like something that, I mean, not something that could really exist, but something that doesn't look out of place in the world. 
And something I really like about this suit that they kind of lose on some of the more recent Iron Man suits, even if they're better animated, this suit looks really physical and like it has weight. And that's because in some shots, it is a real costume. Right, exactly. The CG on the bleeding edge armor in Infinity War is great, but it doesn't look like a real thing like this one does. The Mark III suit has weight. Something they do a lot in modern MCU movies is just have the masks be made out of nanobots and fall apart and i hate that like in this film there's like a heavy clang as his helmet closes and that makes it feel so real also unlike the more modern iron man suits where it's basically instantaneously suiting up which i mean it's fine it's based on higher technology and it works with the character in this movie we get a long drawn out suiting up sequence which is so cool i am going to say this might be a hot take i don't know but i think the mark three armor is the best iron man armor we get in the entire mcu the suit-up scene, as you just mentioned, Casey, is incredible. Like, it's like a giant tank being put onto him piece by piece. And I understand that technology increases, like technology will advance as time goes on, absolutely, and that's what the MCU features. Later in Infinity War and Endgame, it's like nanotechnology, that's what happens. And even later on in the MCU, or even sort of after this film, it's like the, the Iron Man armors become more compact and more smaller, I would say, or less massive as the other ones. And it just, nothing beats the suit-up scene where it's just clanking metal and everything everything pieces coming together and he's like having this giant suit of armor put onto him bit by bit and i think this is the best ar suit of armor we get in the entire mcu also another thing that makes it work i believe casey you just sort of alluded to that the sound design and the music of this oh, film yeah. is outstanding Ob obviously they and this is a really good characterization choice uh, iron man is a big fan of 80s rock which is great because that means they can play the song Iron Man, which is weird because that song has references to Iron Man, the comic character, but in this film it's twisted so he's partially naming himself after a rock song. It's a great characterization. Also, even like the instrumental music, like the core theme of this film, it's really good. I'm pretty sure it's called Driving with the Top Down and it like plays during his fight scenes. The film has good music. Oh yeah, music is great. Sound design is great. The hearing the suit just be put together and move and all that. This film sounds incredible. Also, the first fight scene where he suits up and travels to Afghanistan to fight the Ten Rings, that scene was great. Oh, God. That fight scene. Yeah, not only is it cool, I love how it starts with him just watching the news and seeing people being hurt because of him, and he's, like, messing around with his flight suit, and earlier it's established that he can accidentally break stuff with your pulsers, and then he just turns and breaks a bunch of windows, and he flies off to save the day. And there's yeah. some great yeah, acting, absolutely. just wordlessly, from Robert Downey Jr. Props to this film. That scene is great. And that part where he shoots the missile at the tank, walks away, and behind him there's an explosion. 
That's kind of a cliche, walking towards the camera away from an explosion. That's a cliche, but have you ever seen someone in a giant suit of power armor who just shot a missile on his arm at a tank, and the tank is the one that explodes up? Like, that was outstanding. I loved that. That's such an iconic shot. This film does action well. Speaking of weapons, you know what's a weird thing about this film? Obadiah Stane in several scenes has, like, a sonic device that instantly yeah. paralyzes people. And he says, shame the military didn't want to buy this. Yeah. Why would they not want to buy yeah. that? That's so useful. Also, not just military, law enforcement. It's so useful. And it never shows up in the MCU again. Doesn't even show up in the final battle. Although, even though that would be so useful for Iron Man to have. Why don't you use it on the Hulk? That's a weird yeah. thing about this yeah. film. One thing that I did think was very interesting about this film, and I wanted to know, I wanted to ask your opinion on this, Casey. Do you think that this film is from Tony's perspective? I mean, it's a film that cuts between different characters. I'm not sure I understand the question. It's a movie about Tony. I thought that there was a bit of a disconnect between the audience, me, and Tony and what's going on in his head, you know? And maybe this is just kind of a product of the filmmaking, but it's like he just decides he's going to make himself a suit of armor and there's no thought process as to why he's going to use that to escape the cave. Why can't he just make like a special gun to do it? No, like why does he use the armor, you know? Because armor cool? I don't know. And it's like, I don't know, it's just like for me, it seemed like the film isn't really from Tony's perspective. It's more so just giving us an idea of, okay, this is who he is in the beginning and he's an ass. And we're watching him, and yeah, we feel for him during this entire journey, but we don't really relate to him because he's not a relatable character necessarily. He was an asshole, billionaire, playboy, war profiteer. He is tortured or kept prisoner, and from then on, we don't really get an idea as to what his headspace is. We just kind of see him make decisions and feeling bad and trying to redeem himself. So for me, upon rewatching this film, I felt like there was a sense of disconnect between the film. And maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Yeah, I didn't get that. He doesn't really say stuff out loud a lot, but I never yeah. questioned what was going on. Yeah, neither did I. Process. And I never... I like thought it was bad it's just for me i don't know i just think that the point of this film isn't necessarily to get you in the perspective of him it's more so to just show you what this man is going through what did you think of the romance between tony and pepper i actually like iron man and pepper Potts as a couple i think they have good chemistry and it feels very natural because like we said earlier most of the dialogue in this film was improvised and Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow bounce off each other pretty well. I think they're a pretty good couple, which is surprising because I don't think I have ever praised a couple on this show before. I don't think so either. Let's see. Misa sucks. Vicky sucks. Shannon sucks. Hello uh, sucks. Yeah, this is the first time I'm going to praise a romance on this show. They... Iron Man and Pepper Potts are a good couple. And it's not even really a romance. It's just kind of this will-they-won't-they they sexual tension type thing that they later turn into like a romance. And they don't even kiss. They have this awkward near kiss. And it's in a funny scene. One thing I do know about it is Robert Downey Jr.'s wife in real life is friends with Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, that must be so awkward at dinner parties. 
No, no, it's not. And here's why. Well, she's also in theater. She's a producer, Susan Downey. Robert says that because Gwyneth Paltrow and his wife are friends, he has a free pass to kiss her as much as he wants on these films. So, I don't know. That's a thing. (laughs) So, he likes working with Gwyneth Paltrow because he gets to kiss her because his wife is okay with it. (laughs) Because they're friends. Yeah, it's it's interesting. What did you think of Clark Gregg as Agent Phil Coulson? You know, it's kind of weird. He's barely in this film, and I don't really have any strong feelings about him. I don't know why people latched on to him. Obviously, I like his later performances in The Avengers and in his spinoff TV show, but he's not really much of a character in this one. No, I thought he was kind of weird and awkward on purpose because he's like this secret agent trying to recruit a team of superheroes to fight aliens. But I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I he wasn't great. And that's probably because he's not even really there, which is weird because I was a fan of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I stopped after watching season four, not because it was bad, but just because I just kind of didn't get back into it. Um, he... I've seen more than that, and it's pretty good after that. People hated that show when it came out. And Oh, yeah, the first half of season... This is off topic, but the first half of that show's first season was very, very mediocre. But then Winter Soldier came out, and the show suddenly became really good because that gave it something to work off of. The show, for the next two seasons, had its ups and downs, but season four, from what I saw, was great. But the point of what I'm trying to say is Clark Gregg as Phil Coulson is really good, but not in Iron Man, more so in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and in the Avengers. And now Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is non-canonical, says Kevin Feige. So, you know, what do you matter? Yeah, that's... You haven't seen it, but like the fifth season, which came out when Infinity War came out, it really messes up with continuity of the MCU. Basically, the snap does not happen in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because of a long, complicated... I'll talk about you off Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Most of the comedy of this film comes from Robert Downey Jr. just being himself and improving. Mm -hmm. The rest of the film, I wouldn't say, is super funny outside of him. There are a few, like, slapstick moments, like when he's testing out the suit, and he's like, okay, gonna do 10% thrusters, slams into a wall, and in real life will have probably broken his back. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of editing moments that... A, I do think this film is edited very well. But there were some editing moments, like like it would say something and then it'd cut to the next scene and it'd be like in a funny way. Like the editing was funny. Had some funny moments, like... You blew up an F-10! How, what am I going to say? Just say it was a training exercise that went wrong. Then cuts to him giving a press conference. Uh, there was a training exercise <laughs> yesterday that went wrong. There's a few of those scenes throughout it. There's those... Some slapstick moments and Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. That's where all the comedy comes from. There's a post credit scene to this film where Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, comes to Tony Stark and says, I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, basically setting up the Avengers, which we later got four years later, and now we just had Endgame. The ending of this film, it has two moments that just change everything. There's that where it ends with, hey, we're going to make an Avengers movie, and... I didn't see this movie until a few years after it came out. I can only imagine how insane Marvel fans must have been after that happened. 
And the other thing this film does in its end that changes everything is the iconic line later repeated in Endgame, but we'll get to that a few years from now, maybe. Who knows? I am Iron Man choosing not to have a secret identity, which wasn't even in the script. Like I said, they wing the film halfway through production. That completely defines Iron Man in later installments and the MCU as a whole with secret identities not really being a thing. And that's really interesting. And the best part about that, that was purely Robert Downey Jr.'s idea. Mm -hmm. Like you said, that wasn't in the script. That was just him saying, hey, I think this would work. And it did. <laughs> the reason why Samuel L. Jackson played Nick Fury is because in the early 2000s, Marvel had created the Ultimates universe, where basically people who wanted to get into comic books but didn't know where to start, they didn't know if they were going to be in the middle of a story, they didn't know who's this character, who's this, what's going on here. The Ultimates storylines were an alternate reality where it's a reboot of the main Marvel 616 timeline where it's an updated version of these origins and basically saying, okay, if you want to start on comic books, here's where you start. Although you shouldn't start on the Ultimates because most of the Ultimates stories weren't very good and also all the characters were assholes. Right. Although Ultimate Spider-Man was good and it gave us Miles Morales. Right, exactly. And it didn't work out in the end, but it was a good idea. In the Ultimates universe, they changed Nick Fury as a character a bit. Nick Fury in the main timeline is an immortal man who fought in World War II and he is Caucasian. In the Ultimates line, they made him a mortal man whose dad fought in World War II along with Captain America. And Nick Fury in the Ultimates universe is an African-American. And the artists who drew for these comics modeled his character design after actor Samuel L. Jackson. However, they did it without his permission. So when he found out, he personally called up the executives of Marvel and said, listen, if you ever make a movie with this character, I'm playing him, okay? And that's how he became Nick Fury. Props to Samuel Jackson for being understanding. He got a lot of money out of it in the end. And he's going to get a lot more. Wait, do you think they're going to do much more with Nick Fury going forward? I think he only has a few more films left in him. Well, the post credit scene of Spider-Man Far From Home, he's the director of S.W.O.R.D., which is S.H.I.E.L.D., but for space. So, I mean, I don't know. It depends on what Marvel plans to do for the future. But I think... They do have plans for him still yet. I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Any more major things uh, before we get to scores? Uh, really just one thing. Stan Lee created Iron Man. The late, great Stan Lee. May he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. And Jack Kirby. And Jack Everyone Kirby. Everyone always forgets Jack Kirby. And Jack Kirby. They created Iron Man to challenge themselves. They wanted to make a character that no one would like, but would like anyway. That's how Tony Stark was created. And that is what Robert Downey Jr. was able to bring out as an actor in this film. Like we said at the start of this review, the best part about this film is Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. Who'd have thunk, huh? <laughs> yeah, I love the scene where he's saying, there's nothing except this. I finally know what I have to do. And he continued to be great in other MCU movies, but that's a story for another day. Mm-hmm. This was Iron Man. Riley, on a scale from 1 to 10, how do you rate it? This film has a few problems here and there. It's very much so a product of its time. 
uh, the mid-2000s in a post-9-11 America. There's a few issues with the third act. The first half of the film is a bit quick, a bit fast-paced, a bit rushed. The villain's pretty weak. However, Iron Man as a character and absolutely portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. is completely sells the movie alone. For that alone, watch the movie. There's a lot of good humor, good story, good characters, good acting, good directing, good editing. Overall, I'm going to give this movie an 8 out of 10. It's the same grade I gave Superman the movie, and I think there are some pretty interesting similarities between those two. It's like, what they're trying to go for in telling this story works. It's just around it, there's a few issues leading up to it and ending it. I have a lot of the same thoughts as you, uh... I love the suit. I love a lot of the scenes in this. Robert Downey Jr. is fantastic. It is the bedrock that an empire was built on. Although I kind of cringe at some of its portrayal of the war on terror. And it doesn't reach maybe the heights of other MCU movies. Yeah. I'm going to give it an 8.5. Yeah, yeah. Looking back in my review on Superman the movie, I think maybe I was lenient on that one because it was a very old film and the first, like, big-budget superhero movie. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Anyway, that's the show. We talked about Iron Man for an hour. Riley, where can they find you? You can all find me on TikTok and Instagram at Riley James Thorpe. You can find me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe. Check out my latest short film, Pizza Face, which is on my YouTube channel, and I hope you enjoy. You can find me on Twitter at Jarms Casey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. Also check out The First Mag Train Out of Cleveland and other short stories available now on Amazon. Uh, it's a collection of sci-fi short stories I wrote. Next week, we'll be back, assuming we don't get kidnapped by the Ten Rings and have to build a suit out of scraps in a cave. Ugh. I can't imagine a worse time. Yeah. Next episode, we'll be having a discussion. We're going to be answering the question, should Batman kill the Joker? As always, I'm Casey Jarms. And I am Riley Thorpe. And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to a ladder.